it tells you something about how people see policing and the role of policing in schools that a police officer being called is considered a consequence for bad behavior, right? It's not an intervention. It's not a way of addressing an incident that's happening. It's a consequence. Forgotten Corner Podcast would not exist without our listeners. If you enjoy the work we are doing on this show and would like to support further, please consider a donation through our Patreon account, patreon.com backslash forgottencornerpod, or visit our website, forgottencornerpod.com. Welcome back to the Forgotten Corner Podcast. We acknowledge that the Forgotten Corner occupies unceded Indigenous land. We acknowledge that the Blackfoot Confederacy never surrendered its land in the signing of Treaty 7, but agreed to share it. The Forgotten Corner sits on Treaty 7 and Treaty 4 territory, traditional lands of the Siksika, Kainai, Pekani, Stony Nakoda, and Sutina, as well as the Cree, Sioux, and the Soto bands of the Ojibwa peoples. We also honor and acknowledge that we are on the Métis Nation within Region 3. The Forgotten Corner is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, and uh, if you like uh, progressive podcasts and want to hear more, um, click the link in our show notes because there are plenty on that site that you can check out. My name is Scott Schmidt. I am here uh, alongside a couple of uh, uh, pe- people today. I've got my co-host, Jeremy Appel. Say hello, Jeremy. Hello, Jeremy. <laughs> and uh, we've got back for her third time, tying us for n- most uh, appearances on the show, I believe now with uh, Gosha and uh, <laughs> and longtime friend of the show, um, former trustee for the Edmonton School uh, Public Schools and current PhD student and lover of life, Bridget Sterling. Welcome back to the Forgotten Corner. Hi guys, it's great to be back. You you can't see listener, but uh, Bridget's actually drinking coffee out of a mug that says uh, "Live, Laugh, Love" on it, which I thought was a bit out of character, but it was. Yeah, it, yeah, it yeah. definitely does not. This very bright. If we should be on YouTube right now, because this is the that's the brightest I've ever seen a, a guest um, when they come onto our show on a early Saturday morning. So this is good, but there's a specific reason why I wanted to have um, Bridget back on the show today when we first had her on um, many, many moons ago, well over, I think we forgot to actually celebrate our last episode as our hundredth episode, didn't we? Like literally when we had uh, Councillor Walcott on the show was our hundredth episode and we didn't even mention it. So we're pretty we're pretty awesome at promoting. That was, that was also a really good episode to have as our hundredth because uh, I, I don't know if you've listened yet, but uh, Courtney Walcott is a former student of our beloved uh, co-host, Doctor uh, Roberta Lecture. Lecture. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Wow. So, anywho, uh, as a source, so I wanted to tell a quick story today uh, to kind of get into why I w- wanted to have Bridget on. Like I said, when we had her on our f- first show, we, we got a little bit of time in that time to talk about, um, the presence of school resource officers and, and what their roles are, what the pros, maybe the cons against, uh, or, or for why they exist. And I just wanted to tell a quick story today of something that happened this week that got me sort of more and more, uh, ma- angered, I guess, throughout the week and, I want to preface it by saying that, you know, at no point in this story is this about 
you know, I think my kid was in danger or, or any of these things. I just think it is like a string of terrible policy that led to an encounter. So anyways, my kid's school, he is a, it's a school that has grades seven, eight, nine, and then 10, 11, 12 are kind of separated, but they're all in the same building. For the seven, eight, and nines, it's considered a closed campus, which means that under no circumstances are they allowed to leave the school property for any reason. Now we thought, well, maybe that's a COVID uh, rule. Apparently it's because years ago they had problems with, you know, some kids would go over to the arena about a block and a half away to fight these kinds of things. And so they wanted to make sure that the kids were always on campus, I guess. So anyways, um, <clears throat> I didn't even really know this was a rule, but apparently it is. So the other day, uh, my, my son, and his friends made the horrifying criminal mistake of walking down the street during their lunch hour to go to the Circle K to buy a drink. Circle K's solid 200 yards from the campus. So we're talking like pretty big track here, like at least two football fields to get there, right? So anyways, as they were going, they were stopped by... A police officer who got out, talked to them, told them that they were, took all their names, gave them a spiel about how what they were doing was wrong, and they, they were all going to get suspended. Then the cop was like, I mean, you might as well go get your drink now. You're already in trouble. So apparently it's horrible that they left, but not so horrible that they couldn't finish the crime once they were caught doing it. Anyway, the, the end result of this was that they had like an in-school detention of 15 minutes or half an hour over a lunch hour, which is whatever. But then we got an email from the uh, vice principal telling us that uh, our son was caught by constable so-and-so leaving the campus at, during the lunch hour and blah, 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 blah. They trust that we will have a conversation with our son about why this is the worst thing ever. And that the next time he does it, he will be suspended. And so that's kind of the end of the whole thing. And as a parent, like I'd already known about it because our kid is brutally honest. And he came home and told us right away, day one, you know, did try to hide it. This happened. Apparently I'm getting suspended. No one said anything to us yet though. So your first reaction as a parent is kind of like, well, dude, you know, don't break the, don't break the rules. Like you're supposed to stay, you knew you were supposed to stay, you shouldn't have gone. And then like, I started to think about it just as like, from every angle, from like a kid's point of view to my point of view. And I was like, well, first of all, that rule is ridiculous. The idea that my kid can't go get a drink at Circle K boggles my mind. Also his aunt lives across the street literally across the street from the school if he goes to her house for lunch he's going to get suspended so that's that's hilariously ridiculous to me but the enforcement of this is what has me just churning as the week goes on because and I'm, i want to also preface this by saying i don't think that race or anything had anything to do with this as far as why he got stopped but my son's friends that he was with are all young black male immigrants. And I am 
beside myself over the idea that 13-year-old children should have their first police encounter with a, a man with a gun intimidating them about why they've done this or whatever. These people are not giving anyone involved here a respect of authority or anything like that. They're the whole idea from you can't leave the campus is just making it like a prison-like scenario at school where it's like, yeah, I'm really going to want to learn. And now you've got like cops being like hall monitors with a gun. And it just, the more I thought about it, the more I thought this is terrible on every level. It, it, it's extremely bad for a child's development to have police encounters when they're in their preteens. I think it's, I think it's insane that one of the jobs that we expect of a school resource officer is to be the hall monitor. Like, what is it that they're doing this? So this is the story and I, I'll stop ranting because I want to let you react to it, Bridget, because I brought you here today because I really want to just talk about like, this was the first time I thought about this in the sense of like the, the lowest level of encounter. Like whenever I think about school resource officers, I'm always thinking about it on like the highest level of, oh, there was a violent crime or whatever, right? I never really got a chance to think about it on the ice, on the idea of what is it saying to our kids to create a prison-like scenario on the campus where if they leave for any reason, even when they're not like, they didn't skip class, this was lunch. They leave for any reason, the cops are going to run them down and intimidate them. So anyways, I'm going to let you off the floor for a couple of minutes to react to that. And then we can sort of start bouncing some questions off of you. Yeah, I mean, first of all, this blows my mind because like what happened to the time honored junior high tradition of going to get a slushy at lunchtime? Like that's <clears throat> that's just a normal part of being a teenager. But um, no, I it, and I think the, the point you make about it being this like shift from like the high level thinking about like oh we're thinking about violence we're thinking about you know these different things to thinking about like what is the impact on this student's relationship with their school and with their community of this kind of like surveillance type environment right which is what it really becomes i mean for for one thing you're probably right I mean, one, one thing that we heard in Edmonton when students were talking about the impact of school resource officers, and one of the things we know from the research is that racialized kids experience far more of this kind of surveillance and are far more, more likely to have this kind of enforcement happen, right? You know, if your kid had been alone, would maybe he would have just gotten a, hey man, just next time you should know. Like, it's hard to say. It is hard um, to say. It, and that's the thing is like, I didn't want to make it like about this particular no. cop having a racial mindset, a bias when he did it. But it even even if he didn't, what does that say to young black immigrant males mm -hmm. that this is what talking to a cop is going to be like? Yeah. And I and I think that it doesn't necessarily have to mean that a, a police officer is consciously targeting those students. But, you know, this, this is the water we swim in, right? We have a society that, that views some students' bodies as criminal, right? Um, also concerned about the cop being the enforcer of um, what are the, the non-policing rules of a school, right? Like the determination of a punishment, like a, a police officer should not be suggesting what your 
I guess your sentence might be for your right. misbehavior, right? I mean, the use of, of suspension to address this in and of itself for a kid leaving campus to go to get a drink, like this is, it's a problem in and of itself because there's a, a pretty strong correlation between suspension and expulsion and, and high school completion, right? That the more students experience these kind of penalties, the less likely they are to complete high school. And if you don't complete high school, you actually have a far higher risk of entering into the, the you know, the prison system or the, you know, uh, encounters with the courts, all kinds of things, right? Like it's it's a huge predictor of lifetime outcomes. So these things can, like, so so this kind of like small event, right? Especially when it gets to be cumulative, like maybe a kid experiences this and then they continue to experience this kind of like surveillance by a school resource officer, these kinds of encounters. And they're tied in with other experiences in the school. And then this this does, it alienates kids from their relationship with their education, with their school, and it turns school from a place where like, it's exciting to be here and learn to, it's a place I have to be. And if I dare to leave even at what is supposed to be my break time, I'm gonna get in trouble, right? E lunch, right. lunch is not a mandatory time to attend school. Well, this is the thing. Like, I was like, so wait, he can't go to his aunt's house? Like, there's no way that as a parent, I can get him a pass of some kind? Like, he's I've okayed it like nope he's just it's a suspension and like you talk about you know this environment where it's like goes from being an environment where kids are excited to learn to being like this like I'll I'll be honest with you like our son's not exactly a model student he's a great he's a very normal 13 year old boy who kind of doesn't really dig school very much and generally speaking we give the school like free reign to handle that how they want to handle it like that's if 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 they come to us and say like he's being a shitbag student and being a pain like we are like all over that and like i am a ally to the public to public educators i haven't had a chance yet to speak to either the vice principal or this uh constable so i don't know exactly if these two both really enjoy enforcing this rule or if they both think it's dumb as fuck but it didn't change the point to me i guess right like there's no reason whatsoever like was the cop out for lunch and just saw it and decided to enforce this rule or is this what he does every day does he patrol the neighborhood looking for kids like if my kid already doesn't love it there this is not helping, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm trying to work as a, as a household, as, but his mother and I try very hard to sort of realistically keep him sort of focused, like on being there and, and doing a good job. And like, I just, this kind of thing just seems to kill that in, in every way. Yeah, I mean it 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 does. And I you know, you also think about like what's the purpose of of a public school, what's the purpose of education, right? And the purpose of education is supposed to, you know, in part, it, the reason we have public education as a society is it's supposed to help, you know, children grow into being the people we want them to be as citizens, right? As part of our community, as part of our society. And part of that is like teaching them how to be in community. And I don't think this kind of thing teaches kids how to be in community, right? Like, I, well, it does, but it doesn't teach them a very good lesson. About That's not that the is. community we're trying to shape for them. Well, is I it? mean, <laughs> well, I, 
I mean, maybe, maybe it is the kind of community some people are trying to shape for them, right? Where they are, where people behave because they're worried that the, otherwise the cops are going to punish them, right? Yeah. I mean, the, that's not actually a very effective way to get people to be, to be good in their community, right? Yeah. Like, what would the approach be if you just talk to kids about and help them understand how to be responsible people at lunchtime, right? And let them grow through those stages of trust too, because that's the other thing is like, part of a kid's development is they have to start being able to do independent things. Right? Yeah. They have to start being able to make those decisions. So. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of um, punitive being the automatic way mm-hmm. to handle anything with children. Like, I think that sometimes there are punishments or repercussions or consequences to actions that you have to sort of make sure happen as a parent. But we don't approach every single time our kid makes a mistake with the idea that he's going to lose something or be, be hindered by like a punish, like it doesn't, there's teaching opportunities. Right. And sometimes when your kid does something that you're like, Oh my God, you have to step back for a second and go like one, how did I handle this as a kid? You know, like what, did, what, what was my move in this scenario? What are the pressures around him that lead to decision? These kinds of things. Not everything is, well, well, you're grounded fella. And like, you're, you know, I, we just don't parent that way. And I'm kudos to you. If you do, that's great. I just, it didn't work for me. I, I was, made me more of a pain in the ass. And I just, we don't like doing that with our kid. Yeah. So this makes you think a bit about some of the conversations that we had, you know, as trustees, school board trustees set policy for their divisions and some, some divisions trustees take a more active role in it than others, but, you know, certainly for me, I was very passionate about policy and we were working on our student code of conduct, an updated student code of conduct for Edmonton Public. And at one point we had, um, uh, during it, the, um, there was a list of consequences in the draft code of conduct. And so it, it listed potential consequences. And I mean, you do, you set out like, what are the different things that can happen, right? And, you know, some of them are things like you're going to have a restorative meeting, right? And a conversation or some of it's like, you know, it could be suspension or expulsion. There's a range of, of things listed in there though, was um, calling police. Now, what, what's your police officers aren't a consequence, right? Like that, it tells you something about how people see policing and the role of policing in schools, that a police officer being called is considered a consequence for bad behavior, right? It's not an intervention. It's not a way of addressing an incident that's happening. It's a consequence, right? So the police officer was in itself in people's thinking, a form of punishment, right? A form of negative outcome, right? Rather than, I think what people talk about policing as, which I don't think it generally is, but talk about policing as an intervention, a way to address a situation that's happening, a way to deal with maybe a crisis incident or something like that, right? But no, people perceived it as a consequence. And that that really told me a lot about how people in schools see the role of the SRO. I mean, jokingly, I said to my wife when we were talking about this, like, did he, were they on their way to fucking rob Circle K? Like, because that's, that's about the only time, like, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like 
you go through all the emotions as a parent. Like I didn't want to go in guns a blazing. Cause I felt that all week. Like I wanted to make some phone calls and be like, Oh, I'm about to have a conversation champ, you know, that kind of stuff. And, uh, uh, the better part of me kept me from doing that, but it, it, it's uh, anyway, when you were doing, when you got into made this sort of a, like a focal point of your work, um, was there anything that sort of triggered it in in the first place that sort of made you think like this is something that we need to uh put a lot of attention on as a board like sros or yeah yeah when you when was that something was there something that made like like a because uh you know like an incident or anything where you were like jesus what and then sort of yeah well i mean it had been it had been in the conversation for quite a while and uh I'll give a huge shout out here to, to Bashir Mohammed, who I, I think has been on with you guys before too. Um, Bashir, he actually hasn't. Not yet, but oh, if you're hearing this, get on well, you, you Yeah, yeah we Bashir. should. I, uh... You should, he's amazing. Um, so Bashir came to us as a board, uh, registered to speak at a meeting and, and he'd spoken to me about this too. I've known Bashir for a long time. He actually, the first time I ran for school board, I, I didn't win, but um, uh, Bashir was a really key volunteer on that campaign like I've known him for a long time before he was I think he was still in high school at that point right like he's um a remarkable young person right. he's um, young too like yeah I think he's he's still in his in his 20s but yeah he's um always <laughs> when when someone is that accomplished in their 20s I'm just yeah uh, he I if like, like what was I doing then Bashir has accomplished more in his twenties than what a lot of people do in their lifetimes, I think. But he um he had spoken to me about it before, um, you know, and I did think it was a concern the SROs. Um, and then he came and spoke to the board, uh, registered to speak at a board meeting. I think it was at 2017, 2018, I'm trying to remember the year. Um, came and spoke to us and and um. You know, talked about the impact of SROs, particularly on, um, um, you know, young black men, young black students in sure. schools, right? Um, that spoke about spoke about that impact and, and came and talked to the board. And you know, at that time, I, I took it seriously. I thought, well, how do I start to move people's thinking? And I thought at that time that the best way to shift people's thinking was to have some conversations and ask questions behind the scenes to start changing the system from within. I think it, you all know I've learned some lessons about how that works since then. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, and so, so, so what I found at that time is it, it, it just got completely shut down, right? So um, I started asking questions. The next thing I knew we had um, SROs and, and a, a school principal come in to do a lunch and learn for the trustees, which was really like a little kind of PR presentation. Um, the police chief was inviting the board chair out for lunch. Uh, and um, basically the whole conversation got shut down, right? And um, at that point in time, I sort of thought, well, the best thing we're gonna have to do then is to start to shift the public conversation, right? Because if we put forward a motion, we have a vote on this right now, it's not going to, um, it's not gonna work, right? We're not gonna, we're not gonna be able to win on this issue until we have a majority of trustees. Because otherwise, if you vote on something, First of all, you can't bring the vote back for a year unless somebody on the no side brings it back. Um, but also, like, 
you have a no vote on something like that, it's probably going to be off the table for a decade, right? Like it's just done. Wow. Um, you know, like, like people, it's just like, you, you just kill the conversation. Right. Um, so I thought, okay, it's, this is not going to work, but then over the next couple of years, I really, um, really had my eyes opened in some ways about police. So we saw the rise of, um, um, you know, they've been active in the city for a while, but we saw some um, white supremacist and Islamophobic groups continue to organize in the city and really escalate. Um, and I was involved in sort of some um, counter-organizing to that. And what I realized very quickly is police were far more interested in what we were doing as counter-organizers than they were in the actual, you know, white supremacists. Um, and then we started to find out a number of things. I mean, first of all, we got into, you know, 2020 and, and the re kind of resurgence of Black Lives Matter, because some people think Black Lives Matter started in 2020. It didn't. It started many years before that, but we saw a real revitalization in 2020. But also... Right. Many of the same people who are, like, ridiculing it, uh, you know, when it started, like, what, eight years ago or even before uh you know suddenly uh um you know made their uh profile picture black for uh a, a day oh and, you uh, mean u.s senators uh, kneeling in kenti cloth oh my god yeah <laughs> uh, yeah that picture of nancy pelosi doing that is like forever etched into my oh my god can't she retire uh yeah he's so like 80 or, or justin trudeau going to the rally and kneeling and it's like man they're they're protesting you like anyways uh, that is classic judo but anyways i digress yeah that's that's a digression but um so the other thing that we started to find out and i'd been working with some community folks over time talking about like how do you organize how do you start to to change things with school boards like what do you need to do to to kind of put the pressure on but what we saw is suddenly we started finding out about things that sros had done um mm -hmm. So it came to light that over a period of years that the Edmonton Police Service was using the SRO program as a place to put cops who were under investigation um, while they were off the street, right, that they were put on non-patrol duty. Well, apparently the Edmonton Police Service thought the best place to put cops who were accused of things like loading nine Indigenous people into the back of a van on a hot summer day and driving them around for hours and then dumping them on the other side of the city after these people have been driven all around in a boiling hot van with no water. Best place to put those cops, right, was to put them in a school, right? The best place to put officers accused of um, violence against, um, it, you know, people in the community or other kinds of corruption or, um, you know, misconduct was to put them in schools. Well, I think that says a lot about like, not just like, you can look at that in a couple ways, right? Like, they're just like, well, it's almost like the Catholic Church, like, just dump them over here, and it'll be fine. But in a lot of ways, it's a it shows how little, obviously, how little cops want to do this fucking job. Like, if if 
you have nobody available to be SROs, but the, the biggest pieces of shit among you, obviously that's showing you that not exactly a lot of cops are lining up to volunteer for this. Like, I know you said off air or whatever that, you know, it can be like a cushy nine to five job or whatever. And everybody, and that can be appealing to some let's not t- kid ourselves that when people dream at night as a kid, that they're going to be a cop one day. That have that that chasing down kids who are got, buying a Slurpee is anywhere near the top of the list of shit that they want to do when they do it, and so like I think like it like just what you're talking about here is like more exposure of multiple problems that come from this entire concept. Yeah, and I mean there there are some like I've met some SROs because you do when you're a trustee, right? You meet people when you go to schools, and I've met some who genuinely. You know, they, there was one SRO I met who, before he became a police officer, had been a youth worker, right? And being becoming an SRO was like something that actually he found exciting. Um, you know, and I'm not going to die. The, the majority of SROs don't have that background, right? Like right. the majority of them have, there's, there's studies that show they have in Alberta that there is no consistent training, that almost none of them have any formal training whatsoever, that there's a list of suggested courses from the PD courses that police officers can access that an SRO should take with the Edmonton Police Service. None of them actually talk really about how to deal with youth. They're like community policing stuff, right? Right. but they're not, there's no qualification. There's no requirement. There's no requirement to have a background in child and youth work. There's no specialized training for it. Like they just take some, some online courses and they get put into a school. But, but what we saw is, is the placement of these guys in schools. So, you know, you had another officer who'd been um, accused of um, kicking a woman in the face during an arrest and calling her racial slurs. And we even had um, one officer who got into a physical altercation uh, in uh, Edmonton Catholic school with a student from the school who apparently he had some kind of interpersonal conflict with, it's not really clear. Right. Um, so he got in a physical fight with this kid, pepper sprayed him, um, you know, threw him on the ground. Was this like, in, in, just with, outside the, outside the was school. It, like, in, oh, okay, it wasn't It was inside. on school, it as in, I like, understand. As it was on property. It was on school property, right. as I understand. Uh, not, not that makes a difference. School. I'm just trying to like visualize it. No, I mean, it, it, on, on the school property, or off, like that kind of violence against a student is, you know, and, and doesn't appear to have been, as far as we know, hasn't been disciplined for it. Although one of the things to know is that police disciplinary processes take years, right? Yeah. And so we got told that this pro, you know, practice of putting bad cops into schools had ended once they brought in a, you know, Sergeant M. Chan took over the program, mm-hmm. but we don't actually know that. So there's no information given to school divisions about the disciplinary histories of police officers. How, how easy is it for the public, sorry to interrupt, but how easy is it for the public to find out about a specific police officer if they've ever had any citations or complaints or anything like that? Can a, can a person off the street just find that for any officer? I'm imagining no, that's why I'm asking, but maybe you can. It's not easy. The journalists do find out about the conduct hearings, Mm -hmm. but that's only generally that information is only really there once the the officer gets to a conduct hearing, you know, and it depends on the level of misconduct. Like if it's something that makes the news like that, that hot box story, right? Like, or sweat box, I think it's 
the the incident gets reflected. well i mean really it comes down to like for us generally i mean the line is crime like once a cop is charged with something we're going to find out about it but even we don't find out about every little well and we don't find out about investigations that go nowhere very often they have to be pretty sort of and they're often they're often not um charged with crimes that's the thing people don't understand (laughs) right and even in school divisions school division leadership often doesn't understand this so you know when i brought this issue up with people in the division they're like well we can't ask about hr issues for people who aren't our employees and like these aren't hr issues right this isn't somebody being late for work like these misconduct hearings are like a diversion from criminal charges so rather than an officer being charged with something that you and i would get charged with right like if i threw somebody on the ground kicked them in the head and called them you know racialized slurs right like i would get charged i i I would hope i would get charged yeah that's a criminal incident if a cop does it it instead gets diverted into this this conduct hearing process right so so rather than being a criminal charge so it never enters the criminal justice system right it enters into this alternative system yeah um, that's a disciplinary system for police but it doesn't create a criminal record it doesn't it often doesn't result in officers being fired right they will sometimes get demoted they'll sometimes get suspended they'll often they sometimes get suspended with pay while they're in the process, but often they won't, they'll just get removed from, from duty. And that's what was happening with these cops that were getting placed in schools. Right. So. Sorry. Do, do, well, one, I want to prep, like, I want to just reiterate one more time because I don't want anyone that is listening from medicine hat that can sort of piece together by the end of this, who I'm talking about, like at no point am I saying that this particular constable that was involved in this incident has any issue like maybe it's his favorite thing to do to be there i'm not questioning that at all i just wanted to say that one more time um i want to ask you is it just standard practice that an sro would carry a gun like is it do they always carry guns do they never care like they always carry guns yeah it's part of a police officer's uniform right right like so they never they if they are in uniform they always have their firearm like that's that's just Standard, standard practice standard practice so, so they are carrying their firearms have you ever heard of an sro with a gun stopping a bad guy with a gun not in, not as far as i am aware of in canada and one incident that people talk about a lot is that you know marjorie stoneman douglas right the the really terrible um school shooting in in florida right um at that in that incident, um, there was an SRO on site, and he actually ran away. He oh stopped the shooter. Oh my god! Are you serious? And in fact, and in fact, now, so he got, he ended up in court over this, and the excuse was that that actually wasn't part of his job. I mean, all all arrest kids go into Circle K, but there's no fucking way I'm getting in a gunfight. Yeah. So well, this is. <laughs> this is the thing like like it's the it's it's the broader thing of like people assuming that like this whole like the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good way well this is why that's I not like actually that. a thing that happens yeah right so i mean what we're like i guess i was trying to get to the place where it's like okay we have sros in canadian schools like i don't i mean i, I understand that i mean there was a huge shooting in milwaukee last night that nobody's even talking about so it's like 
I get that it's just like normal down there and they have like school shooting drills in schools. Like I wish I could do something about the horrific name, but like, I don't, we have to try to protect our own education systems forever going down those roads, I think. And I just wanted to sort of make the point that like, obviously having SROs with guns on campus has never saved anyone from anything. Yeah. I mean, school, school shootings are rare in Canada. Just, we have a different, I mean, gun ownership's different here. There's a lot of different cultural things around, right. around guns. There's, we're just, you know, there are actually a lot of gun owners in Canada, but just our, a lot of it is social attitudes around, around firearms. Right. Um, I mean, my guess but, is most SROs go, I, there's probably not a, very many incidences in Canada's SRO history where a cop even drew his gun or their gun, I should say. No, I think it's pretty rare. I okay. mean, we had we had the SRO sergeant here during the debate around SROs right. actually go on CBC radio and claim that there were, you know, gun incidents all the time happening in, in schools. And he got he ended up being called out because it was an absolute lie because we as school board trustees get notified of any right. severe incidents in our schools like we we get a an immediate memo right whenever there's like a significant incident in the entire time that i was on the school board i was never notified of a firearms incident that involved a student in a school right so there were there was a one incident i think that one of my colleagues who'd been on the board longer than me remembered of a, a imitation weapon right and that's often right when they talk about and that's how incident. a kid will end up shot one day because they have a toy gun and a cop's got a real gun not that that has happened but that's to me that's it's, there for the taking i mean it's it happened in the u.s right like right uh tamir rice right yeah kid with kid with a toy gun in a park right and it had and in edmonton in the this year i mean about 30 percent of homicides in edmonton this year were people who were shot by police and you if you were killed shit. this year in edmonton you well, were... you couldn't even be a bystander sitting in your house watching no, goddamn it's... prices or Wheel of Fortune or whatever without taking a stray bullet in Edmonton. Yeah, like like this is the thing, and yeah. so you know when we when we talk about police preventing shootings, like let's let's also talk about how many people police shoot. Well, they don't prevent anything, right? right? And... They're there after the crime. Go ahead, Jeremy. Mm -hmm. Um, no, I, I wanted to ask because I believe there's a, a, a fatal stabbing at, in Edmonton school uh, relatively recently, and the line the EPS was using was like, see, this is what happens when uh, you don't have SROs in schools. Um, now, you've, of course, given uh, several examples of police committing violence in schools, but, but what's your response to that argument that also um, that um, you know, having them there, like, fine, no, no one's been shot um, in, in, in schools, but um, that there are other forms of violence that SROs are supposedly uh, there to prevent. Yeah, I mean, I first want to say that that, that incident is an awful, tragic, terrible and I, I can't imagine what it's like to be that family, right? To send your kid to school in the morning and have them not come home. Like, like it, it's, you know, one of the things as a trustee is like, you feel a sense of, I used to feel a sense of, of grief every time anything happened with a kid, right? Like if we get notified of a student death, like 
for any reason, it was just, I mean, it just, it hits you in the stomach, right? You feel a sense of responsibility for every child. That said, the incident in question, first of all, didn't take place. It took place at the bus stop, right? So near the school, but not, not in the school. Um, school resource officers do sometimes patrol around the school, but a lot of the time they are in their office doing paperwork or they're in a meeting with a kid or with, with staff. They're in the gym playing basketball, right? They're doing that kind of stuff. Like the probability of that SRO being there when the incident happened and able to intervene and able to intervene without potentially shooting however many kids like you had a group of students it's just really questionable and that's uh even like there's a, a criminologist here in at the u of a tevi toby oriola who's um talked about how this this incident almost certainly wouldn't have been prevented by the sro that that's not what happens the other the other claim has been well students talk to sros when they hear rumors about things happening well yeah i mean kids talk to adults that they see as being able to you know intervene in an incident and some sros will form relationships with students but like forming relationships with students does not require a cop with a gun right like other people can and do form relationships with students all the time and in fact are often far better at it right because they're trained to do it they have an understanding how to do it and they're not the punitive guy with the gun well and this is sort of everything about the defund the police argument right and the whole thing of like all these police officers doing things that they never became a cop to even want to do and certainly aren't trained to do yeah i mean again you get the rare sro like the the guy i was talking about who has a background coincidentally in that but he didn't the majority of sros are just they were cops they're just cops who who maybe like kids, right? Or they were a soccer coach or something like that before they became an SRO. Like they, right. that's their their background in working with kids, right? So it just, the idea that, you know, these, I mean, terrible incidents happen in schools and they happen between students and we hope they will never happen. But, um, you know, I think back to the 1990s when I was a high school student in Edmonton and we had a wave of pretty significant violence around schools um, that, between students. And we had SROs at that time. Edmonton's had SROs since the 1970s. There was an SRO in my high school. The thing about these situations is, first of all, they were happening often near school grounds or on grounds, but not in buildings. Yeah. Um, and they were not talked about at the time by the police in this way if they did make the news, but they were white supremacist gang incidents, right? So what you were seeing was often racialized violence of there was a, a, a increase in activity among, among white supremacists in the city. There were youth who were recruited into it. And then there were these incidents happening around schools. Um, and SROs didn't stop that from happening, right? The, the presence of police didn't stop that from happening. There was some pretty severe violence that went down. There were some knives there's some things like and you know once knives are involved it's just lucky nobody gets killed right like you know stabbing is not a great thing uh but so this is the thing like like this claim that the presence of school policing magically stops these things from happening 
or the idea that schools are somehow uniquely dangerous places, which is the other thing about this. I, like we don't have a full-time police officer in the mall. We don't have a full-time police officer in every building on the you university campus. You know where we campus. do have full-time police officers though? Like I can't help but thinking about this. Like if a punitive environment with surveillance and, and police presence was a recipe for no violence, wouldn't there be like no violence in prisons? Like, I understand that, like, okay, you can make the argument that that's where we're putting our bad people or whatever, and they're more likely to be violent, but like, they're constantly under surveillance. They're not allowed to fucking go anywhere. And there's a cop with a gun every six feet. And you're telling me that that stops crime and violence in prisons from happening. Like, like, this is the argument of like, does violence do you meet violence with violence or does meeting violence with violence create more violence? And like, if a cop, if an SRO even there, right, let's say like the stabbing at the, at the at Edmonton school, like the SRO is standing there as it's, as it's about to take place. Their only option for intervening is violence. Well, it, what are it they going to do? Step in yeah. with some 80s movie montage speech and like everybody hugs it like it's Michael Jackson's Beat It video. And like, no, like <laughs> they're like, it's just going to make the situation worse. Not that it wasn't already horrifying. No, but it, it, it certainly can. And, and again, it's it's this weird thinking that we have about. About schools and about about high schools and teenagers in particular, that somehow they are both uniquely violent right that that, that right. there's a there's a, a level of violence and criminality in schools and yet also that students are uniquely in need of special protection because they are vulnerable and therefore we need a police officer in the school to protect our vulnerable children and that often is under the surface it's racialized right so you know when i think back to our debate in edmonton around sros one of the arguments the a trustee actually had to resign over this. One of the arguments made by somebody on the other side of things was that, you know, well, there are refugee kids in schools and these kids are violent. And so you need SROs there to deal with this, right? And so there is, I mean, there is a racialized undercurrent to this, right? You, mm -hmm. And you think about where SROs were first placed in schools. Um, they were often placed at schools that were considered inner city or, mm -hmm. you know, which is often a coded language. Uh, and where they've been placed into junior highs, right? So, so junior high schools have them here now. And again, those have been in, you know, school in communities with higher numbers of racialized students. Um, and in fact, this is often the intent of SRO programs. So if you look at how SRO programs have been described by police, it has been described as a way to build relationships and get entrance into, um, racialized and immigrant communities. Like that's actually an explicit purpose that they're trying to build connections into those communities to increase their ability to police those groups of people. Well, and and like I went perusing trying to find exactly what was written about these different things that I experienced with our kid. Cause one, I can't find squat on the school website about a closed campus. That's another story. But I also like, as I'm looking into the SRO program here, I see a lot about, you know, promoting communities, uh, promoting community safety relationships, these kinds of things with kids. I don't see anything in there about 
enforcement. You know, I don't see anything in there about protection. Right. Um, so if I just, it just, like I said, just brings me back to the idea of the, the entire concept. Cause we have all these anecdotes about this is a time when a SRO did a good thing. And this is a time when an SRO did a bad thing, but at its core, fundamentally, do we really want our kids having disciplinary encounters with people carrying guns when they're in grade school? Well, and you know, they, they use this language of it's about diversion. It's about, you know, coaching and supporting and nurturing kids, but okay. So, so, so do I was, <laughs> well, not only that, I was never able to get this data and kudos to, um, to, you know, uh, Alex DaCosta, professor, um, and, uh, and to Bashir Muhammad on the, the Edmonton SRO research project who finally managed to get through some, some points and some digging and some, then some really hard work going through pages and pages of documents. Um, were able to identify that like, no, actually they, they were keeping track of, you know, arrests, um, suspensions, um, you know, expulsions related to SROs and to this category of students who were not students who had been arrested for anything. They're not students who had been suspended or expelled for anything necessarily. They were just listed in this database as offenders. So, so they weren't kids who'd been charged with a crime. They weren't kids who had been suspended or installed. I mean, probably a subset of them were, but you know, you look at like, you know, 2000 criminal charges just over were, were issued by SROs during the time period of this, that these documents covered. 20,000 kids, almost 21,000 kids were labeled as offenders. So what, wow. what does this mean, right? So, so these kids have some sort of mysterious record that SROs are keeping when they haven't been criminalized. Like offender is usually like, like it's language that means something within, you know, our, our, our court and criminal system, right? Sure. So offender means somebody who has been, generally is used to mean somebody who's been convicted, right? Convicted of an offense. Yeah. Yeah. So almost 21,000 kids who had never been charged with a crime or convicted of a crime, like not even charged, let alone convicted, labeled as offender, this mysterious label. And what does it mean for a young person to have somebody in their school, label them with this tag, and then for that to follow them in a document that is keeping track of them? It's unbelievable. Like, I, I hadn't even thought of the word, like you used the word surveillance fairly early today. And like, that is just such a perfect world for the word for this whole thing because like i you know i've been stewing about this for a week but i never really thought like i like i thought about this prison mindset you know and i but that is it's like we're teaching these kids that they're gonna be that we're watching you mm -hmm. and that if you slip up we're gonna punish you with cops like it's just it's madness to me and I don't see it being of any value uh, at all, uh, the more I thought about it, right? Like I was just like, if the, the thing that I've read into about what they're supposed to be doing there, you could have 
all kinds of different people that are qualified to do that beyond the beyond the campus doing things like this and engaging with kids not carrying a gun and talking about all the things like being good members of the community having but like also having a little bit of that freedom to be themselves and be uh not always under the thumb of something you know we mentioned uh Bashir and Alex's research which was fantastic um that there's a particular incident they refer to uh, about a cop planting a uh, a phone with like a recording vice um, uh, in it on a kid to try and bust them for uh, what they um, ha- had accused him of uh, of. Uh, of like stealing phones so they 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 planted this phone um on him and this was approved right by um sorry it's been a while since the 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 research came out but Bridget you know I'm referring to right yeah the so they they were and they denied this for a little while they were doing this bait phone program and so they were they were leaving like it's a reality show that's what they called it too yeah they were calling the bait phone so they were what they were doing is they were taking cell phones with tracking on them and putting them in places in schools so that kids could steal the phone like first of all i thought entrapment was illegal in canada oh but they they don't claim it's entrapment because you know the kid had the choice to pick up the phone or not right like so it's like they, they, this happens actually in other ways with police too. So there was a, a situation recently in Edmonton where there was a, a high-speed chase incident that had actually been um, a, a car with, with tracking in it that, that the cops were using bait cars basically to see if someone would steal the car and then chasing them down and arresting them for stealing the car. It's a television show out of Vegas. Was for years. Bait car. They were they were doing it here. Yeah, with the the bait phone thing. Yeah, they were doing this. And like, first of all, I mean, prove that the kid picked up the phone and put it in their pocket to steal it and not to maybe try to find out who it belonged to. Right. Second of all, you're often doing this in kid like with kids who are living in some pretty desperate circumstances, right? So, you know, also teenagers don't have like cognitively and actually until about the age of 25 people don't have a really great sense of consequence right and they're impulsive right Mm -hmm. and so if you put that phone there and it's sitting by itself in the middle of nowhere you know nobody appears to be watching a kid picks it up and puts it in their pocket I mean adults actually do that stuff right like the the number of incidents where somebody finds a wallet and returns it to the person that it belonged to especially if there's a lot of money in it like some people do other people take it right like that's it's a pretty normal human behavior Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, so this, this was this incident of like bait phones and, and then kids being, being criminalized because of this, this system, right? So yeah, this, this surveillance system is, is very, very real as part of this process. I just, I mean, as it's happening, like, what is the minds, like, are they, do they do this because it's like, ah, it's just makes my life easier. And like, I don't give a fuck about kids or like, is it like, do they actually believe like, you know, like, like, does the, does the vice principal that emailed my wife to tell her that she better have a conversation with our kid? Like, does this guy like, 
like this is his motivation that I don't really want to deal with it. So this is how we're going to handle it. Or is his like, is he actually think there's a developmental benefit to any of this? Because any thought of this from a child's perspective is shows it to be a detriment. And for the, if I have to live in a world where putting a cloth mask over their faces, ruining their whole fucking universe, then I should at least be able to make the point that, disciplinary encounters with the fuzz is a fucking pretty bad way to raise a child but it's how i mean it's reflective of how our society thinks about children right um you know and i can i can get into a whole bunch of philosophical stuff here but but that we see children as this kind of other right like if you think about like children are actually one of the most abused demographics of people on earth right like so like it's globally the statistic is one in two children will experience some form of child abuse right like we see children as property right we still do even though like legally children aren't property anymore um we view socially children as property right as belonging to the parent for the parent to see fit in doing what they want to do to the child and then because schools have this you know parental you know, in local parentis, although that's not really a principle anymore, and that's that's a whole other conversation. But this this role they've been entrusted with the care of the child, then there's that that attitude carries over, right? This idea that children are ours to shape and mold and do to what we wish to make them into the people we want them to be, right? They're not viewed as people in a way that we view other people. They're viewed as these sort of future people right there'll be people someday but right now they're ours to do with what we want and that shapes a whole way of thinking about people when you think about when you semi-dehumanize a group of people mm -hmm. right when you see them as yours to shape and to mold and to do with as you wish and as having ownership over them right it's the same as any other system where people see themselves owning a person that creates a lot of, of behaviors towards that person because then you can discipline them, you can make them into who you want, right? And like, that's not to say that we don't have a role towards young people to help them grow and develop into like good people. Like that's an important role that we have as a society, but it's that ownership perspective as compared to that like care and stewardship perspective. Right. That really, really shapes a lot of this stuff. And I think it's what underpins a lot of the way we see children. So we see them as this kind of, and then teenagers are this kind of like, dangerous in between other right because they're not adults we don't see them as full people but they have autonomy and free will and rebelliousness and all of these things that are actually really normal developmentally and healthy if they're directed in the right, right way and supported but instead we we use that as a way to to punish them well i think that and this is a, you make you gave me the perfect sort of transition idea and, and we're getting to the end of the show and we kind of have to wrap up, but I will be remiss and Roberta will kick my butt if I don't ask about this because she texted me this morning to say so, but um, we've been talking a lot today about just the idea of police presence in our kids' lives and, and you're talking about uh, make a great point of how we look at children as this something that we can shape and control and, and be in charge of and, and whatnot. Um, I, I'm sure both of you heard about, and I, I imagine now most of our listeners have, there was a 
a dress code situation in, in an, an Ottawa high school, a Catholic high school. Um, these kids have a dress code and, and whole podcast we could do about how dress codes are almost entirely to target uh, young girls and women because uh, there is no, like it's always about that shit, but we'll make that point now and move along to talk. But they, the, it was a really hot day and they thought, the staff at the school thought, what a great time to have a blitz, they called it, a goddamn dress code blitz, where they, anyone that they thought might be violating this dress code on this very hot day where it was unseasonably, dis- like, despicably warm. And so, God forbid, these fucking children would dress comfortably. So they marched mostly, almost entirely female students into the hallway and allegedly, uh, we don't have to get into even how they inspected them, but uh, there was uh, allegations of measurements, allegations of fingers going under hems of skirts. And I want to be careful that those are allegations at this point, because you never, but that is, it sounds, you know, there's a lot of people, witnesses saying this is what happened. The school is denying that, of course, right? But anyway, a student body then held a protest in at over this because fucking duh, like I'm thank way to go students stand up to bullshit. So this is a, and the cops were there pretty quickly. Um, uh, a lot of allegations of this protest being sort of threatened by police and people being told they're going to get fined. And just once again, just, and of course, another whole podcast could be of the police presence in Ottawa at a school protest versus the police presence in Ottawa at a convoy protest and how long these things take to materialize. But I guess Trudeau passed the emergencies act in about five minutes because the police were there breaking shit up. Anyway, you guys see that? What were your thoughts when you kind of saw that, uh, Bridget, let's start there. Well, I mean, first of all, uh, dress codes. I mean, I before I before I took on policing in schools, I took on on dress codes. Right? Is that you know uh, that's that's a that's a passion of mine. And yeah, if you if you want to talk about dress codes, sometime we can do that. Uh, but but what we it really is part of this. It's a spectrum, right? So when we think about we talk about school to prison pipelines, and we talk about surveillance in schools, this is a spectrum. And, and dress codes are part of that spectrum, right? And people talk about things like, oh, we're trying to teach young people how to dress so that when they're adults, they can be professional. It's like, okay, so... so. I didn't have but, a dress code and I figured that shit out for myself, but anyway. Well, yeah, and I mean, it, it just strikes me that, that we have this whole whole idea around dress codes, but they're almost always gendered, right? They're, they're targeted right. at, they're targeted at, at you know, um, female presenting people, you know, um, although often they can also target um, gender non-conforming kids too, right? Like mm-hmm. I think about in my high school, there was a, you know, it's granted as the 90s, things have changed a bit, but there was a young, a young person who, from my school who came in clothing that would not, uh, that would have been perceived as feminine clothing and they were sent home to change, right? Like, so, but what we, what we see is is that this is the same spectrum, right? Like it's it's policing the bodies of of young people. Um, often, you know, and I heard from students and talking about dress codes. So this is also often racialized that that racialized students will will sometimes experience dress coding for things that that white kids don't experience dress coding for. 
it's perceived as different when when a, a black girl wears a particular outfit than when a white girl does you know it's, it's like talking about this or when a black student wears a do-rag yeah oh yeah i mean yeah. we had that incident in with uh ml here right in edmonton their student was uh you know things that are perceived as just clothing are perceived as gang related clothing when it's a, thugs as they yeah. would say Fuck. yeah so so we have this you know and often other things that get listed like sagging pants and stuff like that like this is these are racialized right anything that's going after the male dress code is probably a racialized thing like it's probably trying to keep you from going a little too uh hip-hop as they would have said in my high school yeah and then girls are (laughs) i i think you know i had a a friend whose six-year-old was sent home for wearing a spaghetti strap tank top i don't think she was sent home she was given a way too large t-shirt to wear and she had to wear this t-shirt for the rest of the day to cover so, we, so, so we're shaming her in every way possible a six-year-old's body like mm-hmm. like but this it is the same spectrum and so the i'm more worried police, about the teacher that looks at a six-year-old in a sexualized manner in any way sorry yeah. but like if you look at a six-year-old in a spaghetti strap and your brain even thinks that's inappropriate why are you thinking about a six-year-old that way it's interesting that all these people like screeching about like uh uh you know lgbtq teachers grooming kids have nothing to say about cops like uh you know sexualizing them yeah and, and the idea that that students exercising their legitimate right to protest right which right. the charter despite what some people's perspective perspective is the charter actually protects children like the, the children have charter rights you know um you're kidding has... i thought they were property we just talked about this yeah no kids have property rights talking but true <laughs> uh and the united nations convention on the rights of the child right includes uh the right to expression and a, and a number of things right to assembly the same the same kind of rights sure. so young people have a right to peaceful protest and the fact that young people exercising their right to peaceful protest when it's attached to a school require a criminal response that you do not see in response to other forms of peaceful protest right you know, I've I've been at a number of protests where, you know, we've we've taken to the streets sometimes and, and yeah, sometimes people get arrested, but a lot of the time they don't, you know, or you you have a rally or whatever, like and, and no, you know, people sometimes get arrested, but most of the time cops just kind of manage it, right? It's it's pretty normal. And that that because it's young people attached to a school, that then we have to call the police to deal with these young people exercising. Right a right to peaceful protest and maybe standing in the street in front of their school like heaven forbid that young people should block a road right to, to be allowed to wear a pair of shorts and we're not talking about a goddamn dangerous goods route here we're talking about like they stood in front of their school like yeah. they didn't exactly disrupt downtown ottawa for three weeks you know like the like even if the police got there and were nice i mean there's quite like quite people the quote was aggressive police well whether they were or they weren't what the fuck are they doing there in the first place like maybe you know sometimes police are called out to stop traffic to to protect the protesters yeah only if they're protesting uh yeah vaccine mandates apparently yeah it tells you about where the alignments of policing right right and you're you're getting police videos of police hugging goodbye to border blockaders at coots you know after after one of them like tried to fucking kill a cop well yeah, right. not not just that you have cops like 
on video expressing their support for it and not necessarily even being, but yeah, they, so you know, it brings you back to this question of like, what, what are police for and what are they doing and why are they in our society? Um, and I wanted to come back sort of to one more thing um, that you said, Scott, which is you talked about how police forces frame this as a way to, to create trust with young people and mm -hmm. to form relationships. And I mean, there are lots of, even if you support policing, right? Which I mean, I'm pretty skeptical of policing in general, but uh, even if you support it, um, you know, we have lots of uh, people in society that we want kids to feel safe and trust, right? Like right. doctors, firefighters, you know, nurses, you know, all of these different people that we, we want them to, to trust and feel safe with. We don't have any of those other people full-time in our schools, right? Like sometimes they come to visit, sometimes the firefighters come to visit or you do a tour of the fire hall. They don't work in the school full-time. Like you don't have a full-time- You're probably you know, more likely to have a fucking fire. <laughs> Yeah. Then you yeah. are uh, like a gun incident or something, right? Like way, way more likely to have to have a fire or, or other need to or other need to or or, or Maybe a cat incident. gets stuck in the tree. I don't know. Or medical. Gotta have a right? firefighter on campus. You never know. Like the number of times kids hurt themselves on the playground or whatever. Why we not EMTs? Have, Why are there not EMTs have, in every school saving lives? We don't have school nurses anymore, right? Like there used to be full-time school nurses in a lot of schools and a lot of schools don't, don't have nurses anymore. I grew up with that. But the other thing is like, why are we seeing police as a necessary body for young people to trust? Like that's, it's not a good thing. It's, and people talk about, well, police are there because we can have them educate kids about their rights in the criminal system. The last person you want educating people about their rights in the criminal system as a police officer right? 100%. Like, like inviting a lawyer to do that right yeah. somebody who has expertise in law because police don't actually have to know the law they're not no. required they don't have to pass a test on the law to become no. a police officer so there's all of these things that's like i think we need to start to question like why do we think that we need to have an intimate relationship between children and police 100%. I, it just, I've never thought of it on this level before. And I realized that, that sometimes things have to happen to you or whatever. And like I said, like at no point did I feel like my kid was in danger or that this cop was overly rude or mean. I don't know. Like these, none of that happened. It's just the idea in the first place is insane to me. Like, what are we teaching? Like, I couldn't figure out what conversation I was supposed to have with my kid based on this email we got. I trust you're going to talk to your kid about this. What am I going to say? What, what do you want me to say? Like, what is it from, what's the school's point of view that I'm supposed to fucking relate, relay to this kid? What exactly am I supposed to tell him that makes him realize that he was wrong in this scenario? Yeah. Like, I just couldn't, I can't, I don't understand it from the idea of the rule to the enforcement of it to how it just looks in general to the, I think being stopped by the police when you're walking down the street is an intimidating experience for pretty much anyone. 13 mm -hmm. year olds. Yeah. I don't know. This fucking kills me. But anyway, I suppose we've been doing this for a really long time here. So we should probably get off and let Mo not have to edit like too, too long of a show, but um, 
we always love having you on here. And like, I immediately thought of you when I was like stewing about this week. So thank you so much for coming on, on the short notice and, and talking to us a little bit about this today. Jeremy, did you have any more questions uh, for Bridget before we let her get back to her co-op life? Uh, no, uh, I know she, uh, has zero vision, uh, to watch and, uh, That's yeah, right. no, I think we, we covered a lot of ground and, uh, always, uh, always good to hear from, uh, you Bridget and your insights. We're starting a race of who's been on the most. So we'll have to bring her on and talk about dress codes so she can officially be should bring her and Gosha on, uh, oh. and have, I mean, Gosha and I have had some great conversations about COVID policy in schools. I mean, we're kind of past that being a big thing now, but um, unfortunately, like. Well, yeah, because you can't have COVID, you can't have health measures in schools because it's a detriment to their development. Do you not understand? Like that ruins a child's (laughs) development. You know, guns and, and, and prison scenarios, no big deal. Going to the Circle K is way more a danger to your kid than COVID related hepatitis. Right? absolutely do you know you have any idea where the circle k has been you don't know what you're gonna catch there you could get covid there yeah (laughs) Yeah, you could get covid at the circle k even though i reiterate that uh, the cop let them go get their drink after it was all said and done like this is a terrible crime and you can never do it and i have a gun and you're gonna get suspended but finish the crime because you've already started you imagine that with any other crime like (laughs) cop catches you fucking like eating the ice cream cone that you stole and he's like just you can finish the cone i mean you start it's it's okay they're not going to do that they're too busy finding connor mcdavid's laptop (laughs) (laughs) killer killer well that's a big game for you guys tonight too so uh hopefully by the time this comes yeah there's apparently there's hockey yeah, that's right. Well, I don't normally, I wouldn't care because my hockey team was long, long out, but uh, I kind of want to see the Battle of Alberta again. So I hope by the yeah. time this comes out, that came to fruition, but they both got game seven. So we'll see. Yeah. L- l- actually, I'll say off pod. Oh, is it, is, it, is it racist? Jeremy always, Jeremy always throws in these teasers right at the end of our, our I know, episodes right? where he's like, Who's no, we'll talk, talk about that off about? the pod. I know. Who is he defaming? I can't wait to find out. Anyway, <laughs> uh, it's that time in the show, you guys, where we thank our patrons who go way above and beyond anything we could hope for to Darius Beregard, to Dave Von Miller, to Chris Derwald, Farah Chaudhry, Nicola Dinicola, and Ray, the big red machine. Love all you guys. Thank you guys so much to all of our other patrons and our listeners and our guests, some of which are all three. We really appreciate having you on the show. And uh, yeah, thanks for being here. And we'll see you guys next week. Bye.